1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author Lisa Servan discusses her new book, The Unbanking of America. Then Book Life President Carl Pritzkat introduces the winners of the Book Life Prize and discusses his contributions to the Trump Survival Guide.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan.
1: So one thing I want to mention is not on the list that some people might expect to see. There are books by and about John Lewis. Uh, he and Donald Trump, President-elect Donald Trump, had a bit of a spat uh, online over last weekend, and uh, following that, apparently sales of his book went through the roof, but that happened just after the cutoff for book scans data, mm. so we won't see that on this week's list, but we'll, um, sure, see it next week.
0: Oh, interesting, yeah. Well, uh, continuing with non uh, we really have only three on the, well, two on the top 25. We're just going to bounce a little bit further into the 30s, but uh, number three, Three Days in January, Dwight Eisenhower's Final Mission by Brett Baer. Um, and uh, this is uh, – we don't have a review of this, but um, just talking about uh, presidents uh, on people's minds, we have Eisenhower. So oh, All right. Uh, and number 12, uh, The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate by Peter uh, Wolleben, translated from the German by Jane Billinghurst. This uh, We sent a review. This fascinating book will intrigue readers who love a walk through the woods. Wolleben, uh, who worked for the German Forestry Commission for 20 years and now manages a beach forest in Germany, has gathered research from scientists around the world examining how trees communicate and interact with one another. So it sounds um, pretty great. It's pretty interesting that it's number 12.
1: Yeah, it came out in September. So I'm curious about uh, what gave it a boost up to the top 25 again.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, And then at number 37, we just have uh, I Hate Everyone Except You by TV host Clinton Kelly. And this is a a kind of a snarky collection of essays about his journey from awkward kid to slightly less awkward adult. Um, Number 37. And that's basically it. All right.
1: Well, there's very little happening in fiction. The highest debut is at number 11. It's The Guests on South Battery by Karen White. This is the fifth book in her Trad Street series, uh, set in Charleston, South Carolina, about a woman who sees spirits, and uh, some of them are benign, some are malevolent, and all of them try to shape her life, and uh, she's just come back from... Uh, maternity leave, Uh, she has a new husband, twins, doesn't want to leave them, um, but needs to get back to work trying to move real estate around, Uh, but uh, also the spirits who had Uh, been leaving her alone while she was pregnant and uh, at home with her children are starting to come back. Uh, We don't have a review of that book. It's definitely for people interested in the series. Um, But I don't recall having heard of the series or seen it on the bestseller list before. So it's nice to see that getting a boost all the way up to number 11. And then uh, down at 17, we have Ring of Fire by Brad Taylor. This is a Pike Logan thriller, the 11th in his series. Our review says that it serves as a chilling primer for an all-too-feasible terrorist strike. And uh, in this case, it's actually a, a succession of attacks designed to cripple America's shipping industry. You say that Taylor relies heavily on readers' familiarity with the main characters, their backstories kept to a minimum, but that leaves space for intriguing secondary characters, such as a Somali-American sleeper cell drone pilot and the deadly but principled South African mercenary who stalks the terrorists. And the ever-escalating chaos will leave fans breathless. Mm. And uh, finally, just a little below that, number 19, The Sleepwalker by Chris Bajalian. Uh, We uh, say that this is a stylish fusion of mystery and domestic thriller set in Vermont in the year 2000, and it explores the aftermath of the inexplicable disappearance of a woman who's prone to sleepwalking. Uh, She just vanishes from her home in the middle of the night. No one knows where she went or if she even knew that she was doing it. Mm. Uh, We say the book is powered by brilliantly rendered characters, an intriguing topic, and a darkly lyrical narrative that captures the melancholic tone of autumn in New England with red maples in their death throes. And this novel has only one weak point, a highly improbable conclusion that may leave readers unsatisfied. Mm. Uh, Certainly people have been willing to pick it up, uh, and that's on our list. Number 19, and that's what we've got. I think we've been waiting for some book to make a big splash, but I feel like everybody's kind of holding their breath, waiting for the inauguration, and uh, maybe after that...
0: Go back to their... Things will ramp up. Right, exactly.
1: We'll find out. All right. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, Lisa Servan tells us why so many Americans don't use banks. We'll be right back. I'm Danica Kelly, author of Bestiary, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Lisa Servon on the line. Her new book is The Unbanking of America. Hi, Lisa. So glad you could join
2: us. Hi, thanks for inviting me. It's great to be here. So in your
0: book, you make the point that today's banks only cater to the wealthy, but that most people are are then forced to turn to other ways of banking. T- tell us about it.
2: Yeah, I, I was very surprised when I started doing this the research for the book um, several years ago. It built partly on the fact that uh, the FDIC had started counting and categorizing people as banked or unbanked or underbanked, and what they found was that 8% of Americans do not have a bank account, and another 20% use a bank account, have a bank account, but also use alternative financial services like check cashers and payday lenders.
1: So 8% um, don't have a bank account at all. Are they keeping their cash under the mattress? What do those people do as alternatives to banks?
2: the under the mattress solution is still alive and well but they are doing other things as well um, and at the same time around the same time that the FDIC started counting people people were also taking a lot of uh, close look at the at these alternative financial services providers that I mentioned and found that starting about in the early 1990s the use of check cashers and payday lenders and payday loans for people who aren't familiar with them are very short-term small loans that carry high price tags um, we saw that those businesses were growing rapidly. Um, the payday loan business alone grew from $10 billion to $30 billion between 2002 and 2012. So, um, so that's one thing that people have been doing, too, is either switching or augmenting their bank services with these other services. And um, I felt like I needed to take a closer look at that, which kind of led to the research that I did for the book.
1: So to better understand these options, you actually took jobs at a check cashing establishment in the South Bronx and at a payday lender in Oakland, California. And those are both um, fairly low income neighborhoods, places where people might need these alternatives. What were those jobs like?
2: Humbling. (laughs) for one thing, Um, you know, the work was was hard, just doing it, dealing with huge amounts of money and and very complicated. But, um, you know, the reason I did it was that I felt like in order to really understand why people were using these services, I had to get as close to the problem as possible. And, you know, it struck me that when you call somebody unbanked or underbanked, there's kind of this implicit... um, implicit sense that they're deficient in some way. You know, there's this kind of underlying tone of, if they only knew what I knew, then they'd use bank accounts, too. That's clearly the right thing to do. And, in fact, policymakers really responded to this counting of people and categorize them that way by trying to create initiatives to move people into bank accounts. And having done research in lower-income communities for more than 20 years, it struck me that the people who have the least money know where every penny goes. And so, it, it seemed to me that there must be more to the story than that. So that's kind of what led me to take these jobs. And I it was uh, incredibly fascinating. I learned that people, um, surprise, to my surprise, are using check cashers and to some extent payday lenders because they find them to be less expensive than banks, hmm. more transparent than banks, and to provide better service than banks. So tell us,
0: uh, I mean, what the experience was like for you. If you could maybe Tell us an anecdote or, or a story about what it was like being behind the counter of of of, of say the the check center.
2: Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'll tell you one that that actually to me really illustrates why it was important for me. Not even, you know, I do a lot of interviewing and participatory um, research in in my work, but this is the first time I'd actually taken a job like this and. Um, one story that kind of illustrates why it was the right way to do the work was um, a contractor named Carlos who came into the check casher, which is called write check pretty often and because he was a small businessman, he had checks of you know a few hundred or a few thousand dollars and One time he came into the into write into check with a check for five thousand dollars and I cashed it, and I gave him uh, his you know, his cash, which amounted to about $4,900.02 or something like that. So he paid almost $100, 9750 to cash the check. Um, those rates are, are regulated by state law. And in New York City, where I worked, uh, it was 1.95% of the face value of the check. Uh, so, you know, here I am sitting behind the counter and I'm thinking, this guy's gotta have a bank account, right? He's a small business person. Why is he, why is he leaving a hundred bucks on the table, right? That's not small change. And, you know, Carlos left. He actually tipped me ten dollars that day, which was another, um, surprising fact sort of component of this work. And I had to ask the teller I worked with, and I said, you know, why is, he, why is he doing this? He's got to have a bank account. And she said, well, Lisa, you know, it's Thursday today, and he's probably got to pay his guys tomorrow. And his guys are probably, don't all have bank accounts. Some of them are undocumented workers. If anybody has ever walked around New York City where you guys are, you know that a lot of um, uh, the, the contractors use a lot of immigrant labor, some of whom are documented and some not. Or she said, you know so so if he had if Carlos had deposited that five thousand dollars check in a bank account, it wouldn't have cleared by the next day when he needed to to pay his workers. or she said, maybe he got a, a a contract for a job, and he needs to start right away and he can't start the job unless he buys materials, and he can't buy those materials if he doesn't have cash so That was a a, a kind of a perfect illustration of why uh, how someone who's making the decision to use a check casher and pay what sounds like a lot of money is making a very rational decision, even though it's expensive. So you know the point is that expensive is not always irrational, and it doesn't always come from ignorance, which was really the implicit message in a lot of the work that I'd read before doing this research.
0: And he also tipped you, and and you said it seemed to me that's not uncommon.
2: Yeah, well, it wasn't it wasn't uncommon there, but I was surprised. You know, the first time it happened to me, I kept pushing the money back below the bulletproof glass because I, I thought the person didn't understand that it was theirs. But um, so that I think is kind of an indication of the fact that people felt like they were getting really good service. And I would say that um, you know, working in both of these places, I what struck me immediately was that there were relationships between the tellers and the customers. Where I worked at check, both of the tellers I worked with most days had been there for 10 years. So, you know, they'd seen their customers' children grow up. They knew each other. Uh, When the teller who trained me went on maternity leave, people dropped off baby gifts for her. They would bring up Mm. coffee sometimes in the morning. Um, And that does not happen at the bank I go to. I don't know about you guys. But, um, (laughs) you know, what it reminded me of was the bank I went to as a kid in the late 60s and early 70s with my parents, which was, you know, a small local bank. A lot of banks were like that back then. And everybody knew each other, and you know there was a kind of a relational component to it that's missing now. Um, and so those were a couple of the the kind of prominent takeaways from 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 working there. I
1: was I was going to say the bank I go to is like a, a bunch of ATMs after hours. I don't remember the last time I I directly dealt face to face with a real person
2: at my bank. And, and if you did, you probably wouldn't recognize them, right? And they, wouldn't, they yeah. wouldn't say like, hey, how are you? You know, how was your vacation last week? Um, and we were actually trained to to behave in that way, to be friendly, to use our customers' names. Um, it, was, it was the expectation of the job to give people really good service. Um, and so that was important. And, you know, it's part of the business model. My, my boss at the check casher, Joe Coleman, when I would talk to him about this, he said, you know, Lisa, banks want – a mil- Banks want one customer with a million dollars, and check cashers want a million customers with one dollar. It's just, you know, banks don't really want you to come in because it costs them more money. Whereas at the check casher, the more you come in, the more business they're doing. Mm. Right? So the, the, the business model is very different as well.
0: So how did you land these jobs?
2: Um, you know, I was... I knew that I wanted to do it, and I was really worried that no one would hire me. And I, I knew that I couldn't really I, – I didn't want to do it as an undercover thing. It just right. didn't feel ethical to me. Um, so I had had Joe Coleman, the guy I just mentioned, come to speak to a class I taught a couple of years before I, I started the work in detail. And he was introduced to me by a woman who runs a, check, uh, a credit union in the South Bronx. Um, and I had him come to class, and I actually had my students reading – you know, all of the academic literature and some of the popular literature that talked about how predatory these guys were and how they are part of the poverty industry. And I I was really expecting this kind of nasty guy to show up. And Joe is um, open and uh, open-minded and very smart. And he came to my class and made a really compelling argument for why he thought his businesses were serving the community well. And so it was Joe that I called once I was, you know, had looked into this issue more and figured... Realized I couldn't really answer the question of why so many people were using these services if they were really so bad for them. Um, I called Joe and asked if he'd be open to me working as a teller, and he thought it was a great idea. And then he really was instrumental in helping me get the job in Oakland because he could kind of talk to the people there and say, "Listen, you know, Lisa's okay." Right. Mm. You know, it's going to be okay if you let her come in, and it's it's for the good of the industry.
0: So you do say in your book that, you know, that lenders are often characterized as preying, as, as preying on the poor, which you just mentioned now. Um, mm-hmm. Tell us, you know, when you invited them to your lecture, uh, you, you, you teach at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, uh, what, I was at the new school back then. Oh, ah, yeah. okay. Um yeah. What was it that they said? How was it that, other than the uh, the example you had just given us, uh, how was it that they're not preying on it, on, on the poor?
2: Well, so uh, you know, the way that Joe explained it was he he really talked about how how the model works for people, and it it kind of it supports what my own customers told me. Uh, you know, after I worked for four months at RightCheck and then at both places. I came around from behind the counter and did a lot of in depth interviews with, with customers. And so let's talk about cost, maybe, right? That's where, that's where the label predatory comes from, is that these are high priced services. In the case of check cashers, uh, a lot of people, a lot of my customers would, like Carlos, would say, Well, you know, yeah, I know that I'm paying to get this check cashed, but if I put it in my account and it's not, uh, it, it doesn't clear. Friday and it doesn't clear till Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm going to be late on my bills and I'm going to get a penalty fee, um, which might cost more than that two percent, one point nine five percent. They also talked about how if they timed things wrong. Um, th- so when you live close to the edge and you don't have a large monthly balance, a minimum balance in your account, if you try to, if you put that deposit that check into your account. You may write your rent check let's just let's say, and you think it's going to clear you hope that your check your paycheck's going to clear before your rent check gets deposited, but people make miscalculations all the time and it's partly because the bank doesn't always tell you exactly when that che- that money will be available to you. Um, banks will take your deposits only five days a week, but they withdraw from your account seven days a week, mm-hmm. so it becomes very hard for people to calculate and banks have um, in the meantime, over the same time that those alternative financial services have been growing, um, banks have really jacked up their fees. So now people are paying more than $30 on average for an overdraft. You know, and if you make a small miscalculation, suddenly you're paying way more than you would have for, uh, for the check casher. And people are not only um, don't feel like they can afford it, but they're, they're angry. Um, you know they can't. They're they're paying higher monthly fees. They're paying higher overdraft ch- charges. They they feel like they're getting nickel and dimed um, at every step by their banks. And so, for many people, and I could talk about the payday example if you want to. But but if you look at it that way, it does not seem predatory.
1: We were talking about the 2% fee. I thought that's not very much. Uh, right. You know, you, you hear about, uh, and I would have liked to hear about the payday lenders because there you yeah. hear about um, interest rates that are, you know, 20, 30% or higher and not regulated. Oh, yeah, much more. Um, right. But, uh, you know, when you say 2% to cash a check, I thought, you know, my bank just sent me uh, a, a balance transfer offer from one credit card to another, and they charge a 3 or 5% fee for that. Nobody calls that predatory.
2: That's right. You know, I know a lot of people now who are small business people, and they use those little squares that you uh-huh. click into your phone. That's a three percent service charge for the vendor. Sure, right. So mm. you know, it's 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 pretty it's pretty common.
1: So tell us a little bit about the payday lenders, because I'm curious about that too.
2: Right. Uh, so I mentioned before a little bit what they are. Um, when I say a small loan, it's usually between about $50 and $300, so that's really small. You um, used to be able to walk into your bank and get a loan like that with a handshake, uh, at least if you were a white man, <laughs> um, but, but not anymore. The short term means probably two to four weeks, and the reason it has the name payday loan is that you actually go into the store, you fill out a very short application, you um, at the when you fill out your application, you're giving the the payday lender the right to take out the amount that you borrowed from your bank account on the day of your next paycheck.
3: Mm-hmm. So
2: you do need to have a job or a government check, a regular government check, to get one of these loans. And they're expensive, so they cost. Um, where I work, they cost fifteen dollars per hundred dollars borrowed. Um, wow. And so, right, so if that if you were to calculate that as an APR which they have to do in most states. Um, so, and they are regulated, but they're regulated at the state level, not the federal level. So as with check cashers, those fees and charges vary to some extent from state to state. But in California, there's a huge sign right on the, smack on the wall that listed the fee and the, and the APR. Um, so it's certainly transparent. Um, but yeah, it's about 400 to 600% APR. Now, the, the problem, um, and the thing that most consumer advocates and even some payday lenders, myself and people like me, get upset about is that uh, a lot of the people who take out these loans cannot pay them back mm-hmm. in two weeks. So they take out that loan. They realize they still need the money. They go back and they, they pay it back, but they take another one out right away. So they're essentially paying another $15 for every 100 And that's where um, this kind of, they call them rollovers, and that's where it can get expensive. If someone takes out a loan that was designed to be and advertised to be a two-week loan, and suddenly they're taking it out for three months or four months. Um, So so that's where it gets a little bit tricky. Um, Rather than simply looking at the business model or what the lenders were doing, uh... i really wanted to understand why people were doing it and what i found was that there were many many people who simply didn't have any other option and that is a growing problem in this country you know there are more than half of americans could not come up with two thousand dollars if they had an emergency and uh... more than half say that they're living from paycheck to paycheck so you know lots of people told me stories about having a surprise medical bill or uh... one of the women i worked with who i write about actually so here's a teller who knows the business really well she's a single mom her car breaks down she needs her car to get to work and so she has this choice of either taking out the expensive loans and fixing her car or losing her job So her name is Ariane she actually took out five loans ranging from I think fifty to three hundred dollars each knowing full well that she wouldn't be able to pay them back on the next paycheck but feeling like she had no other choice So. I think that sometimes when people judge the lenders and, and frankly, the borrowers, too, um, they're, it's partly because we've never walked in their shoes. We've never had to face a choice of taking out a loan or having our kids go hungry or losing a job um, or taking out a loan, even though it's expensive. I had one woman talk to me about how her father was in an assisted living facility and the conditions were horrible, and she just couldn't leave him there. So, she took out some loans and put him in a better one. Um, and so, it's not that there's no thought going in that in, into those decisions, but it's just a situation where people feel like they are really between a rock and a hard place. We're
1: going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
0: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
1: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Lisa Servan, author of The Unbanking of America. You've mentioned state and federal regulations a few times. Tell us a little bit about the effects of banking regulations on uh, these industries, these altern- alternatives to banking.
2: Right. Uh, well, as I mentioned, all the alternatives are are governed and regulated at the state level, or they were until um, very recently when, under the Dodd-Frank Act, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created. That is um, the first federal agency that has jurisdiction over both banks and all kinds of other financial companies. So uh, right now, many people, myself included, are really worried about what's going to happen to the CFPB once Trump is inaugurated. Um, It seems to be an agency that's potentially on the chopping block. But um, I'll put my plug in for it here. It has literally saved millions of Americans billions of dollars uh, by, for example, finding Wells Fargo for uh, selling opening accounts for people that they would never asked for and all kinds of other issues. So we need the CFPB. Um, it will create some standardized rules around payday, l- for payday lenders. One of them, and this will probably help the problem that I just mentioned earlier, is that now once these rules go into effect, people who are applying for loans will have to have their ability to pay verified by mm-hmm. the lender. Mm-hmm. So whereas before, you'd go in and apply for that loan and you'd get it within five minutes, now they're going to have to do a little legwork to make sure that you can pay it back. And in the research I've done, we found that the the attribute of these loans that's most important to consumers is that they get that money right away. And that's kept lower-priced alternative lenders, uh, other lenders, from really competing with the payday lenders. Uh, And there's some good models. I write in the book about one called Opportune that makes loans of about 36%, much lower than a payday loan. Still pretty expensive credit, but much better. And these are also installment loans instead of these lump sum loans. So I think when these rules go into effect at the federal level, places like Opportune will be able to compete more because now the payday lenders will also have to do some underwriting in order to make sure that people can borrow. And that has not been the case until now. Um, so that's pretty important. So have technological
0: advancements improved consumer financial services?
2: You know, uh, they have, right? So so with banking, obviously, uh, I don't know, I mean, it, it sounds like it from from our discussion of a few minutes ago, I hardly ever go into a bank either, right? Mm-hmm. I do most of my banking online, in my pajamas, maybe on Sundays, maybe at 10 o'clock at night. So the convenience factor is huge. Um technology also creates some other changes, including changes in consumer behavior. So as some of the innovators I talked to said, you know, now we're all walking around with these supercomputers in our pockets, our smartphones. And millennials in particular, who make up a quarter of the of the population and are the biggest generation ever, really didn't go, grow up going to banks like I did. Um, so they don't have that kind of loyalty or... Um, habit of doing their banking in a particular way. They're all about using their phones, using apps, um, much more likely to use mobile banking than older people are. So that's one part of it. Um, But then there's also some really interesting innovation that, if it gets adopted widely, will also make financial services uh, less expensive and more available to a wider range of people. Um, one of them that I really like comes from a company called Ripple, which is located in San Francisco. And what Ripple is doing is working on uh, a way to move money immediately and without cost. So um, that's important, because if you think about that wait time between when people's checks get paid, when they, when they deposit their check and when they get mu- their money, that would be erased. Um, for a lot of the people that I dealt with in the South Bronx, a lot of them were Spanish-speaking and had families in Latin America. Um, So most people are probably familiar with this, people who make money here and then they send it back home. So you go to a check-casher or a Western Union, and what you see is somebody handing money across the counter, and then you know, in a little bit, that money's showing up in somebody's account in Guatemala or Mexico. But what happens along the way is that money might stop four or five times as it moves from one system to another. And every time it stops, it takes a little time. There's room for error, and it costs money. Right. And it so it makes that transfer really expensive. And what Chris Larson, who runs Ripple, says is that he, they call that friction. And what Ripple Ripple's technology is designed to do is to take that friction out of the system. So suddenly, uh, you might have people who don't need to go to check cashers because they could just put their money in the bank and then it's there. Um, another uh, another innovation that's abetted by technology is a new credit scoring system that TransUnion is using, um, developed by a guy, uh, an entrepreneur, whose company, L2C, was bought by TransUnion. And what they're doing is... Uh, taking a lot of other information and a wider range of time to to calculate your credit score. So, you know, most of us know that we need to be uh, careful of our credit scores, that that's what determines how much credit we can get, um, Whether oftentimes whether we can get a job, employers are using credit scores, and Mm -hmm. whether we can get an apartment if we're renting. Um, So there are millions of Americans who have no credit score at all because the standard information is not available on them. And there's another huge group that's subprime, and what this new model has shown is that it can score all of the people who have no credit score, and when you score the people who are subprime, many, many, many millions of them move up into prime or superprime. So here's, and, and the reason that the role that technology plays is that there's all kinds of data out there about all of us now. Um, most of that, you know, is kind of creepy. But when you talk about using it for good like this, it could make a big difference in making millions of people perhaps not needing to get a payday loan because they can get cheaper, better credit someplace else.
1: So it sounds like a really exciting time. Um, and uh, you said there were also some concerns about what's going to happen with the incoming administration. Does, does anyone know what the future of these industries looks like?
2: I, you know, there are a couple of things, um, uh, I, we don't know for sure, but Trump has really talked a lot about, uh, pulling back or repealing a lot of the legislation, the changes that were made, particularly following the financial crisis. And, uh, I think that could be very worrisome. Um, what we saw happening in the eighties and nineties was there was a lot of deregulation in the financial services industry. It's what enabled the banks to get very large. So right now, the four largest banks hold 50% of all of our deposits, and mm. the rest are, you know, the other half is shared by about 6,000 banks. That that sheer size of these banks makes them really hard to regulate and govern. It gives them an incredible amount of power. Um, you know, the size isn't the only reason why banking services have gotten so bad for the middle class, but it's one of them. And uh, that the regulation that's been put in place since with Dodd-Frank and since, has put more of a check on, uh, on those banks. And I, I think, unfortunately, we're looking toward a, a situation in which there will be less regulation and not more. Um, and that's not a good thing. So I think people, you know, what I'm hoping people will take away is that there is this thing called the CFPB, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, that's super important. They also have a complaint line that people should know about. Um, And, you know, the other thing that people can really do if they're waking up to feel like their bank is not working in their best interest or not representing their values is simply move their money. You know, it's going to be hard. uh, It will be difficult to push back against what's happening at the federal level. But uh, being aware and then figuring out what you can do on your own are the things that people can do to, to make a difference or push back.
0: And, and do you think banks – is there anything that banks can do to be more accessible to lower-income people, or is there just not that interest for them?
2: Uh, yeah, Both. Yes. yes, there can do more, and there's not that much interest. Um, you know, there are things like, for example, in New York City where we all live, um, the New York, City, New York City created a New York City ID card a few years ago, and part of the reason that they did that was to make – make it easier for people who did not have a driver's license or another form of ID to get the kinds of services that they need, like, like financial services. And the four biggest banks do not accept that ID card, um, which to me is, mm. is a problem. And it demonstrates to some extent that they don't want that client base. Um, the people who need that ID are more likely to be low-income people, maybe immigrants. But there are other banks, Amalgamated is one in New York City, who, that, that does take that identification. Um, KeyBank is another one that I write about, which is a super regional bank based in Ohio. Key actually provides check-cashing services in many of its banks, and they use their proprietary data on their consumers to make small loans to, to their customers, which makes a lot of sense. Banks can do this. You know, they... Uh, they have more, much more information on the people who have accounts there than, say, a payday lender does. And so they can actually use that information to assess the credit worthiness of someone and make them a cheaper loan. But part of it is they feel like they, uh, they're they not making a lot of money that way. And what happened with deregulation was also that banks began to merge. Um, it wasn't just that they got big doing the same things, but they got big creating um, esoteric financial products, like credit default swaps, which were responsible, partly responsible for the crisis. They started doing a lot more business overseas. And so this kind of the everyday consumer with a checking and savings account became much less important to their bottom line. And so uh, uh, it's not that they can't do it, but there's not much motivation. You also wrote a book
1: called Bootstrap Capital, Micro Enterprises and the American Poor. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: That was uh, that was my first book, actually, and I, I wrote about uh, this phenomenon of microenterprise programs in the United States. Um, microenterprise programs are small uh, small loans to help people who have trouble accessing capital start businesses. Um, so there are there are hundreds of them across the country. A lot of people don't know about them. Um, one of the biggest ones is in New York. It's called Axion, and they give loans from a 1000 to, say, $50,000 to help local entrepreneurs. Um, so it's another, it's a very small, expensive form of finance, not so expensive for the consumer, but um, because the loans are so small, most of these programs are subsidized, but they're undoubtedly helping um, small businesses grow and thrive. So, how does that tie into this uh, this ecosystem
1: that you're talking about with alternatives to to banks? It sounds like this is a different kind of alternative
2: yeah it's a different kind of alternative um, you know in in the in the global south we see we see these programs these microfinance programs uh, serving many many more people. Um, it's easier to do it there than it is here, but I think like uh, in a similar way uh, to what the alternatives are that are springing up around kind of consumer finance there's also a gap in, in microfinance for businesses and you know and that has been one of the problems that's happened as a result of banks getting really big um, they don't necessarily have a local presence in the towns and, and cities where they work and so they're less likely to really understand um, the business people and oftentimes you know uh, the micro Enterprise programs, there's a relationship that's created, and um, the person who's the people who are making the loan, the organization that's making the loan, gets to know the person and the business pretty well and feel like they can take a gamble on them. Whereas that's not so much true at the bank; it's it's just uh, numbers, and usually they want a business to have been in business for five years and have uh, show be able to show records and profits. And you can't start a business if you need to show five years. So a lot of what these programs are doing is kind of giving, um, giving small businesses a jump start and then graduating them to banks. But we don't have a similar kind of pipeline, really, for the most part, um, around retail banking, around consumer banking. Mm. So uh,
1: what would be the optimal future Of these services, and uh, and what what would be the best way to help the people who are using them, uh, you know, as you said, are making the best decisions possible from uh, what sounds like a pretty limited
2: menu of choices. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things. One is that at the same time that we are figuring out how to make safe, affordable financial services available to everyone. We also have to recognize that the context uh, and the condition of the American worker has really declined. So it's not just that people can't get good services, but that many more people are living in a state of chronic financial instability. Um, the, The subtitle of my book is How the New Middle Class Survives. And that new middle class is this whole group I mentioned earlier that's that's struggling financially, and that's really a result of declining wages since the 70s, uh, a doubling of income volatility over the last 30 years, meaning people that people can't really predict with any certainty how much money is coming into and out of their bank account uh, into and out of their households from week to week or month to month, and finally um, a retraction of the public and private safety net. So, you know, when that medical problem does hit or when your car breaks down, or when you retire, you're much less likely to have that support net that my parents had, and that I will have, um, fortunately, but my children probably won't. So um, we need to make sure that we're really thinking about those broad kind of macro factors, and we need to be uh, working at the uh, on financial services themselves. Um, I talk about transparency um, and how we can do some things to make it much easier for people to make financial decisions that are good for them. Um, One of the things I recommend in the book is that we create a financial facts box that looks a lot like the nutrition facts boxes that we have on cereal and pasta sauce and peanut butter. You know, so that if you're shopping for a checking account or a prepaid debit card, you could look at the two products side by side the same day, same way you do with two cans of soup and see what the fees are See what um, whether there are monthly charges, whether there are um, balance minimums, all those kinds of things, and it's very hard to do that right now. When you get a checking account, bank gives you a disclosure statement that's 44 pages long, of very fine print. Uh, most people don't get past page one if they're reading it on their own. I also think to build transparency that uh, any kind of financial institution could have uh, a rating that's posted right on its door. Uh, where I live in New York City um, and where you guys are, every restaurant has an A, B, or a C on it in big blue letters. And you know that the ones that have A's are the ones that pass their health inspections with flying colors. I think we could have an independent third party uh, public agency that would give the same kinds of ratings to financial institutions, whether they're banks or payday lenders or pawn shops, so that people know that even, that they know when they're making that choice, that they're making a good choice, that they're, they're going to a good actor. Um, and finally, I think that we do have to have, um, despite the kind of political climate that we're living in right now, there does have to be uh, a kind of swinging back of the, of the pendulum between the government and the banks. You know, we, we used to have this sense that banks were and financial services were necessary for participating in the economy and in civil society, and Woodrow Wilson, Thomas Jefferson – Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis all said, "You know, banks are are like infrastructure. They're not like car companies or clothing companies. They're, they should they should be thought of more like the railroads, this kind of thing that we need to make the economy work." And there was this sense that because financial institutions were getting a lot from government, like the FDIC insurance that that assures that we can't lose all our money in a big crash like people did in 1929, banks have a responsibility to serve us well. But that's kind of gotten lost over the last few decades. And so there has to be a return to putting pressure on banks, um, either, either putting pressure on them to serve us all better or for government to get involved in the provision of financial services.
1: We've been talking with Lisa Servon, and you can find her book, The Unbanking of America, in stores right now. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, Book Life President Carl Pritzkatt introduces the Book Life Prize winner, so stay tuned.
1: Hi, I'm
3: Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs,
0: and here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, Book Life president Carl Pritzkat is here to tell us all about the Book Life Prize. Hi, Carl. Hello. So tell us a little bit first about Book Life and its relationship to PW, just so our listeners have a sense of what we're talking about.
3: Sure. Uh, Book Life is a website that Publishers Weekly operates, um, which is dedicated to supporting Indie authors or self published authors. And a large part of that is creating content that helps indie authors learn about how to create, uh, to publish, and to market books of their own. And so we've collected all of PW's great content from over the years, and we're creating new content that uh, helps indie authors be on the top of their game um, with the sort of explosively growing uh, world of. Self publishing. Um, as part of it, we also allow indie authors to uh, submit their books for publishers' weekly review consideration, which is free, and that's been a very uh, appealing part of what Book Life does for the indie author community.
1: Okay, and uh, and then there's the Book Life Prize.
3: Right, so the Book Life Prize is something we started this last year in 2016, um, and it was specific to fiction uh, only and we did uh six different categories in fiction uh which were general fiction mystery science fiction fantasy romance uh YA and middle grade and uh, we had uh the contest was or the prize excuse me was open for uh 3 months 4 months and we received over 760 uh, submissions. Wow. Um, and as part of people uh, submitting their books, they also received a, a brief assessment. Um, and all the assessments were done by publishers' weekly reviewers. Um, they didn't get a publishers' weekly review, but they did get an assessment and they also received a numerical score. And based on those scores, we then uh, sort of honed it down to a quarter finalist round. And then editors at Book Life and Publishers Weekly took the quarterfinals and then narrowed them down to semifinalists. And then those semifinalists were narrowed down once again to finalists, one in each of the six categories. And then from those six finalists, we have chosen a a grand prize winner, which is $5,000 plus a profile in Publishers Weekly. Um... And we will be announcing that grand prize winner next week in Publishers Weekly.
0: Great. So, and what about these semifinalists?
3: Well, I will say, having been involved closely in judging, it was very exciting and gratifying to see the quality and the breadth and diversity of the work that we received. And um, I would invite everybody who's listening to go to booklife.com and go to the prize section and you can see the assessments that each of the finalists and semi-finalists receive for their books and it really makes you excited to see them especially in that some of these books receive scores of 10 out of 10 or 9.9 out of 10 the, the, the reviewers really really loved these books and when you get a chance to actually read one or two or as many as you want you, you see why They're, the quality is really great and uh it it validates a lot of what people say about the possibility for self publishing. Um, Where it 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 can be a struggle to attain the same quality that traditionally published books do, because you you need to create a team of of people to support you, editors and and so on and so forth. A lot of these people have been able to achieve that, and it's it's really exciting to see that. So. Um, we had one one uh, author in particular actually took the finalists uh, in two categories, both in mystery and in science fiction, um, and
1: uh, with two different
3: books, two different books. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. And uh, both of them received a ten out of ten score. Wow! Um, but uh, and and not all the finalists received a ten out of ten. So we you know in the in the additional judging that we did, we we took other things into consideration. But uh, the author's name is T.J. Slee, and um, which is a, a pseudonym, uh, because T.J. Slee worked in counterterrorism, and therefore some of that information is apparently shows up in the books, and didn't want to compromise uh, his identity. He's living in Scandinavia now, but I, I uh, having a chance to read one of the books and look closely at the other one. They're they're really really exciting interesting books and again it's so fun it's gratifying to be working at book life and to see authors like that who are able to sort of uh, get the attention they deserve through a through a program like this
1: who are some of the other finalists and what, what are their books
3: well let's see we have um, Chris Batts in the romance category which was not forever but love uh, is the title of that one um, Kip Wessel uh, was the finalist in general fiction, and the title is First You Swallow the Moon." And uh, heard a lot from from the different reviewers. One thing I should also say for the for the semi-finalist and finalist consideration, we chose noted authors in these genres, noted self-published authors in these genres to to judge these. And all of these authors were just so praising of of the of the of the books in their Category and also when they saw the finalists in the other categories, they were they were really, uh, really blown away by them. Uh, In the YA category, we have Riven by Jane Alley Harris. And then we actually have a a manuscript. This is a book that has not yet been released in the middle grade category called Crushing the Red Flowers by Jennifer Voigt Kaplan. Um, so and th- and that was part of the the prize consideration as well if you had a manuscript that you wanted us to look at um so and and Jennifer's uh was one and I I corresponded with her early on and she wasn't sure about whether she wanted to to enter the book into the prize um and I sort of had to say to her yeah it's okay manuscripts we we'll we'll, we'll uh, judge them fairly as well and she ended up winning great
1: that's amazing yeah, yeah. So um, the winner is going to be announced on Monday, in Monday's issue? Yes, it is. Uh, all right. So we will, uh, we will definitely keep an eye out for that. Great. And um, there was one other thing that you'd mentioned wanting to talk about. You had yourself contributed to a book coming out, or that's just out, called The Trump Survival Guide, uh, edited by Gene Stone. So tell us a little bit about that book and your contributions to it. Sure.
3: Um, Gene Stone is a very successful author um, who's done a lot of uh, books. Most recently, he edited a book called Forks Over Knives, which was a New York Times bestseller. But um, he's worked in a broad range of categories. And Gene and I worked on some political books back during the George W. Bush administration. Um, And we've been friends for a long time. And after uh, this recent election, uh, the election of Donald Trump, the next day, both of us reached out to each other, sort of shell-shocked and said, wow, is it time to write another book? Um, the, the Bush books we'd written had been political satire, um, but we thought, is, is it time for another book like that? And we agreed that was something we should do. Mm. Um, because of Gene's success as an author in other places, he uh, was able to find a publisher, in this case, Harper Collins. Uh, Very quickly, who said, yes, they'd be interested in in doing the book. The problem was we had one week to turn it around.
1: Wow.
3: uh, Wow. And Gene's got a relationship with some other really fantastic writers and researchers. So uh, Gene and then six of us uh, got together. Gene as the lead author and also as the, the sort of the overall mastermind of it. And uh, we sort of divvied up different chapters, and we went at it. And at the end of the week, Gene took everything that we had created and then uh, made sure that it was a cohesive book. And um, and thus came the Trump Survival Guide, which uh, just released on January 10th. Um, but the main goal was to have it out in time for the inauguration, which... While we're taping this is tomorrow, right, the f- twentieth of
0: January, and the subtitles everything you need to know about living through what you hoped would never happen, um, <laughs> and just give us a, maybe a couple of anecdotes from the book. Sure, a little teaser. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think a lot of people
3: were were broadsided mm-hmm. by this election, and I think there's been amongst. Uh, my circle of friends who tend to be progressive or, or liberals, there's been a tendency to just sort of want to crawl into bed and and, and pull the blinds and, and hope that it all goes away. And what we wanted to do with this book was to really give people information and inspiration, but especially information that would allow them to roll up their sleeves and go out and become more participatory in the political process to make sure that uh, we can have as positive an impact as possible with what is likely to happen over the next four years. So, um, each section, each chapter in the book, and there's 12 chapters on different topics. Each one starts out with sort of a historical background on that particular topic, then an overview of what Donald, uh, excuse me, what Barack Obama did during his administration, and then some speculation on what. Trump is likely to do, but then a list of very tangible actions and uh, sort of organizing tools that a person can use to say, OK, uh, I care a lot about the environment. What can I do to make sure that I have uh, the best impact for the environment wow. in the next four years?
1: So this is um, a real Pick and choose guide because you know flipping through it, it covers a lot of ground. You know, you can talk about politics, LGBTQ issues, environment, as you said, um, senior issues, uh, the social safety net. So it's not the sort of thing where where you're expecting every reader to go through and implement every one of the three hundred suggestions. Right,
3: <laughs> right. No, I, I, you're, you're absolutely right, Rose. And and I think part of the advice that we've given on this is everybody. It's easy to feel overwhelmed with what's going on, and uh, we hope everybody will choose one or two core issues for them that they really care passionately about that touch them personally or that, that they feel strongly about and and really focus on those. Get to know who the elected officials are who are active in those areas and and really reach out to those elected officials and develop a dialogue with them from the local level all the way up to the national level. Also, deal with the the not for profit non governmental groups that are that are active in those areas again, make a relationship with them, uh, get on their their activist list so they can tell you what you can do and then also develop relationships with the with private organizations with businesses that are active in those areas as well that, that you feel aligns with and and by creating that type of uh, involvement and understanding of your specific issue. And, and really digging into it, it, you can. It's more likely you'll have an effect. You'll also feel a little less panicked about what's going on, and you can trust your fellow citizens to do the same in the areas that they're passionate about. And and hopefully we can all sort of buttress the uh, the things that we value
0: in our in our society right now, and make sure they aren't um, dissolved or attacked in any way. Well, it sounds like the book helps helps one feel that uh, helps people feel that they're not uh, that they're in control in some way. Right. Right. Which is which is
3: really important. And I think one of the one of the things that Gene included in the book, which to me is so important, is also so much of this boils down to your interaction with individuals. And Mm. and in so many of our lives, there are people uh, for whom we take granted. Uh, whether it's somebody who mm-hmm. serves us our coffee every morning or somebody that we see on the train every day. And these people may come from very different parts of life than where, where our normal circle of friends or family are. But to be able to reach out to those people and say, listen, I care about you, I value you in my community, and, and we're all going to stay together on this. We're not going to let anybody divide us or, or make us feel isolated. That, that's, that's a very easy but very powerful way of, of making sure that whatever happens with politics and elections doesn't get in the way of
0: the lives that we want to lead. Um,
1: well, that sounds very powerful. Thank you so much for talking about it, Carl. Sure. Always great to have you on the show.
0: And now a final word from our sponsors. I'm Stephen Johnson, the author of Wonderland, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash PWRadio. Uh, Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net.